Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. How many of you love a good picture window? Anybody in here? You like to sit inside and gaze out of a large window over a nice view. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Rocky Mountains, maybe a, a nice view over the ocean. There's, there's just something about that view, something about see, just sitting and relaxing and gazing upon specifically God's creation that is moving, that is relaxing, that can be life-changing in a lot of ways. God grants us the opportunity to be able to, to work the land, to, to, uh, to take care of the animals, all the things that take place. But he also gives us this gorgeous view of his creation. Just this week, we're driving. Just yesterday, I was driving with the family, and I saw a tree that was in bloom. I thought, how gorgeous is that tree? I almost thought about if I could go and pick up some of the seeds, I'd love to have that tree where I can see it every day out the back window of my house. It's interesting when we think about views and we think about the way that we view things, especially as it pertains to our home, there's maybe in your home there's that special picture window. Maybe in your home there's that chair or that porch that you sit on. I remember specifically the, the house that I grew up in, actually from kindergarten until I graduated. My parents actually still live there. I graduated from high school. Uh, there was a window in my room that the same view every single day. I would get up, I would get ready for the day, and as I did, I would look out the window, and I would see that same view. I had a friend uh, actually in school that um, he lived uh, just south of, of where I did, a little bit, I lived in town, but he lived out in the country, a little bit out uh, where there were some nice views. And out the front door of their house, there was a, a really pretty view of the, you know, out across the road, there was an open field and an open nice place. Out of the, the, the west side of their home, there was a nice view out there as well. There was, you could see over kind of, there was like a range, you could see over the hill and, and there were some trees. And out the back, you could see, they were kind of perched on a hill, you could see as far as you could want to. I mean, it was just a gorgeous view. And out the east side of their house, where his sister's room was, there was a, a window that sought or that looked out to a row of trees that were about 10 feet from the house that were really kind of shabby and ugly. And the whole time that she lived in that house, she looked out this window. Every morning she would get up and look out the window and see these trees. And they, there were actually, there was a reason they were there. They were there to block the wind more than anything else because of where they lived. And so as she would look out the window, she would see them and there was really nothing else to look at. And then while she was in college, her parents actually, they, they owned a larger property. Her parents actually moved their house from one part of the property to another. They built a new foundation, they moved the house, they jacked it up, they picked it up, and they moved it and put it on this new property. And the first time that the daughter came home from college and stayed in her old room, she got up and she looked out the window and she saw the most gorgeous view she could ever imagine. Same room, same window, new perspective. 
Today, as we walk through this series, as today as we continue in this series, we walk through this, this new concept and understanding of what it means to believe, what it means to have an actual foundation that we stand upon, we're going to look at the Holy Scriptures. And sadly in life, sadly for many people that we see every day that you maybe rub elbows with, you sit in the cubicle next to, maybe you drive next to them, or you see people that we see every single day, they have a view that they look through, the window that they look through, and the view that they see is just a bunch of shabby trees. And in many cases, the reason is not necessarily because, or their view isn't good, and the reason is not necessarily because the window is dirty or the trees are there, but instead it's because the foundation by which they are perched is wrong. And so today, as we look at the Holy Scriptures, I want to start with this. The foundation by which we live, by which we breathe, by which we can experience real life should be on the Holy Scripture of God. Today, as we discuss the Holy Scripture, I want to read from chapter 218, the Wesleyan Discipline, the sufficiency and full authority of the Holy Scripture for salvation. We believe that the books of the Old and New Testament constitute the Holy Scriptures. They are the inspired and infallible written Word of God, fully inherent in their original manuscripts and superior to all human authority, and have been transmitted to the present without corruption of any essential doctrine. We believe that they contain all things necessary to salvation, so that whatever is not heard therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man or woman that it should be believed as an article of faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Both the Old and New Testament... New Testament's life is offered ultimately through Christ, who is the only mediator between God and humanity. The New Testament teaches Christians how to fulfill the moral principles of the Old Testament, calling for loving obedience to God made possible by the indwelling Spirit, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The canonized books of the Old Testament are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, whichever you'd like to say, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Perhaps you had the little song going in your head. I did too when I was saying those. Um, For some reason on the platform, it's harder to recite them than it is if I'm in a room by myself. The canonized books of the New Testament include Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. The Wesleyan Discipline, 2016, Articles of Religion, this is the Holy Scripture. Scripture is the crux of what we believe. Today we discuss the validity of Scripture, and at the same time, if Scripture is real, if it is authentic, why does it matter in my life? Why does it matter in your life? 
This isn't a proof text week where we're going to take passages of Scripture and try to prove that Scripture is true. In essence, you can't really take the Bible and use it as the means to prove that the Bible is true, although there are some ways, and we are going to look at the composition in and of itself, there are some ways to, to seek out whether or not there's authenticity. But one thing I will say is we are going to look at can Scripture be trusted, and if so, what do I, what do you do about it? I want to explore three specific tests, and, and I borrowed part of the, the research here from the McDowell Foundation. Uh, they're apologists, uh, apologists that um, attempt to prove the, the existence of God, attempt to prove the authenticity of Scripture, many other things. And the three specific tests that, uh, that the McDowells use are starting with the first one, the composition test. This one lets the, the authors speak for themselves. This one allows the authors to take some time to say, okay, here is through either the direct text or reading between the lines of the text, here is the truth. The second one is the companion test. The companion test is, is knowledge about the actual manuscripts. Whether you know it or not, there are actual manuscripts that we have. It, it didn't just start with this printed English Bible. It didn't just start with the text that we have before us. And the third one is the collaboration test. What does the whole of history have to do with Christianity and the Scripture? What does the whole of history say about it? Is there a discrepancy or do things coincide? Do they come together? Before we start on this, let me just say, I'm not just simply using the Bible to prove the Bible. What I will also say is this first half of the, of the, the sermon, the first half of what I'm going to say today, is going to be more or less an opportunity for us to explore some history, to explore the Scripture, and also to explore what God intended uh, for us to have and to know. So let's start with Luke chapter 1 and allow the, the author to speak for himself. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So this is basically an ancient way of the author saying, I am attempting to find a specific account or record a specific account of what has taken place. He even goes as far as to say, now Luke is a, is a physician, he is a, is a learned and a intelligent man, he even goes as far as to say, look, I'm not an eyewitness myself, but I've been doing interviews. And perhaps some of you are doctors or you've been to the doctor before. They typically ask some very pointed and specific questions. And so I would imagine Luke went to those who were with Jesus and said, okay, here are the things I've heard. I would like you to corroborate these stories. I would like to know the detail because I am recording what has taken place. With all certainty, I want to make sure that my writing is true. 2 Peter 1.16 reads like this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. There is nothing, there, there, there is nothing better than an eyewitness, especially when it comes to maybe a crime, right? The eyewitness sees it. They know. And right here, what we see is that there are specific eyewitnesses, not I heard from somebody else, but eyewitnesses that have recorded what took place as they followed along with Jesus. 
And then John, in 1 John 1, 1, he writes this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we, we proclaim concerning to the word of life. That's a lot of senses right there. That which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have looked at with our hands and have touched. If you're attempting to try to expose the truth, what you do is you use more senses to help people to understand and to know the appeal. This is not information passed down. In fact, the, the specifics of the story are, are truly important. Because think about this for a minute. Anytime you hear a fairy tale, it, it starts like uh, once upon a time, right? Right? Not in the year of 1865 or in, in uh, Athens, Ohio. No, no, those aren't typically the details that are given. Probably if you've seen the Star Wars, you, you've seen the beginning of the Star Wars. Every one of them starts the same with those words that are just floating nebulously throughout uh, space, right? In a galaxy far, far away and a long, long time ago, it's like there's this just, just out there, no dates, no details, nothing about the story. There's, there's no way to really look at it and say, okay, I want to get in this other book or in this historical book and try to find it. No, we just kind of throw that out and no detail at all. Well, look at Luke chapter 3, verse 1. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of E. Turitha and Trechononis, <laughs> and words I can't even say, apparently. And that's another, I can read it easily when I'm by myself, right? The, the Tetrarch of Abilene. So, right here, we see that Luke's not trying to pull any punches. He's not trying to say in a land far, far away in this time that you wouldn't know. He's saying, here is the exact time when Jesus walked the earth. Here's the exact time when he went from place to place. He includes these details because once upon a time points towards a lie and details points towards the truth. When someone is lying, they tend to be vague, right? When someone is lying, they tend to, to say things that can't be approved or disproved. When your child comes home late after they've been out and they, they, they're past curfew, they typically don't say, here's where I was and what I was doing. They, they just kind of attempt to, oh, well, there was traffic or so-and-so needed a ride home. And they just kind of leave it at that. And instead, right here, what Luke is saying is, here is the exact time. Here's who was ruling. Here's what was happening. I am recording all of the truth, all of the accounts, because I want you to know how important and trustworthy this information is. A second question to ask about the authors is, does the document contain embarrassing material? Because whether you know it or not, most of the time when someone writes a story, they write, if they're in the story, they write good things about themselves, right? They write things about themselves that are, that are, that are flattering, that make them look better. When we make up lies, so to speak, we attempt to, to get out of trouble or make ourselves look good. Let me ask you this, and I've done it here, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, so to speak. How many times have we read about the disciples and really just kind of laid it on them? Right? I can't believe how dumb they were. I can't believe how they didn't get it. I can't believe the disciples, they, they tried all these things, but, but man, they just, they walked with Jesus. How could they not get it? Well, let me just tell you, you know how we know that the disciples didn't get it? Because they told us. If the story was, was untrue, they would have said, look, we got everything. We knew what we were doing. We understood it all. We were there, right there with Jesus all the way along the way. We got all this. No, they didn't do that. They told the truth. They said, look, we didn't understand. 
We fell asleep. We didn't always get it. The writers that composed the book because of, 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 of their desire to bring forth the truth, they did so with care about the truth. Composition test. Let's, let's look at this. So Peter denies Jesus in Mark chapter 14. And Jesus calls Peter Satan. Now this was not like a joke. This was not like, haha, we're joking around. No, that was like the biggest insult that he could have said. Peter, you are, get behind me, Satan, in Matthew chapter 16. The disciples fall asleep. They fall asleep on their Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. The disciples, I mean, this is all recorded. The disciples don't understand Jesus' teaching, Mark chapter 4 and beyond. And then finally, this this is truly important. In this cultural context in which the scripture was written, women did not have the same uh, opportunity, the same educational understanding or or opportunity there. They they were thought of as lesser than men. And so the reality that in John chapter 20 that women discovered first the empty tomb, that's scandalous. In fact, if they wanted, if the disciples wanted the readers to think that Jesus was real— They would have lied about that. They would have said, okay, if they're trying to convince us of something that wasn't true, they would have said, okay, the priests went first, the people that were reputable, they found Jesus's empty tomb. They're the ones. Instead, they told the truth and said, look, we don't have anything to hide. We're not trying to lie. Instead, these women, they found the tomb. They found that Jesus wasn't there. The writers cared more about the truth than the impression of their own character. Let's take it a step further. They cared more about the truth than their own lives. Let me just read this rap sheet. Peter, Andrew, and Philip were all crucified for their faith. Bartholomew was whipped to death. James was beheaded. Matthew was killed with a sword. Matthias was stoned. Thomas was stabbed with spears. John died after exile at an old age. Luke was hanged. James the just was beaten to death. And Mark was dragged to death by a horse. Ultimately, their character looked bad, right? They looked like a bunch of buffoons, a bunch of fools. But let me just tell you, they lived it all the way out until it cost them their lives. And these first three points are a little bit wordy, so I'm going to give you a little bit of time to write them. But the first point is this. The writers cared more about truth than the impression of their character and even more than their lives. The truth of getting the gospel out, the truth of the the scripture, of allowing others to hear and to know what Jesus had done was more important to them than how they looked and what they looked like, than what it looked like in their lives in scripture and, and history. And especially, it was more important than their lives themselves. They were willing to put themselves in harm's way as they refused to turn from Jesus because they believed in the depths of their hearts that Jesus was the Lord. As a historian, as, as the historians write, these authors, by all means, can be trusted. So the second test is the companion test. The companion test is, is asking about the specific documentation that we have. Had the documents reached us accurately? Because we've all played the game telephone before, right? Maybe as a child you've played telephone, somebody has a message, right? At the beginning it's like, 
hey, I like so-and-so, and that's the message at the beginning, and then it gets all the way in, and it's like purple monkey dishwasher, right? It, it gets to the end. It's, it's a total different message. And so the same thought might be true. Well, we might be able to trust the disciples. We might be able to trust those who recorded. We might be able to trust Paul for all that he wrote down. But wait a minute. Out, throughout the course of history, what has taken place here? Have things changed? Have, they, have things fallen short? Have things been left out? Let me just say, I, 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 I question this as well. Because I do believe that the Spirit inspired the Word. I do believe that the Spirit gave the words to men and women so they could record them so that we could add them today. But what happened there in the middle? I can trust the apostles. But there's two questions that go along with this to to attempt to try to evaluate whether or not we can trust what we have today. The first one is, what is the time gap between the original copies and the original events? And that's truly important because things uh, things, get, th- things change, right? Things get elevated or they get lost after a course of an amount of time uh, when an event takes place. We've all heard the story before of something that's happened. Uh, we heard the story originally, and now when we hear it, uh, the same person tells the same story. We've heard it 50 times, and it changes. It elevates every single time. It's a little bit different. So what is the, the time gap between the original copies and the original events? How close is the copy we have to the events that took place? There's generation one, generation two, generation three, generation 30, right? And it goes all the way up. What copy do we have? How far away is it? There was a movie that came out in the 90s called Multiplicity with, with Michael Keaton. You might remember the movie. It's kind of a silly movie. I don't remember it real well. But one thing I do remember is they were cloning Michael Keaton. He was, he was attempting to try to pull one over on somebody. I don't know exactly what the context of the movie was. Probably not even worth watching. But anyway, so he's, he's, cloning, he's, he's cloning himself so that he can do the work and do this and do that. And eventually what happens is the clones, they decide, hey, we want somebody to work for us. So they clone one of the clones. And this clone has, has issues because it is a copy of the copy. And you might be asking, well, hold on, we, we have a copy of the copy here. This isn't even the original language. The original language is one that, that, that we, can't, we don't speak, we don't know readily, we can't understand the cultural context. So, so wait a minute, if this is a copy of the copy, how can we expect or understand or know that it's true? Well, the first generation, let me just say this, is not necessarily a copy of a copy of a copy. The first generation that was scribed, that was written down after the events of what took place in Jesus' life, we're just going to look at the New Testament, was 40 years. 40 years. And you might say, well, that's a long time. I can forget a lot in 40 years, right? I can forget a lot in 40 years. And let's just say the Gospel of John was written in 130 AD. This is, historically speaking, this is unprecedented. Unprecedented that, that that's the only time gap that took place between the actual events and when it was recorded. David Wallace, the author of, uh, uh, of The Big Fish, he said this, we have more and earlier manuscript evidence about the person of Jesus Christ than we do anyone else in the ancient world, including Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great. And let me just say, there are no doubters on these historical figures. There's not one person I know that says, oh, Julius Caesar never existed, or Alexander the Great never existed, or Abraham Lincoln never existed. No, we just take that at face value because of the manuscripts we have. Let me just say this. The earliest manuscript written after the, the events or the life of, of Alexander the Great was 800 years later, and that is the average. 800 versus 40. The second question is this. How many manuscripts do we have? This is probably more uh, encouraging, and this could be a good thing or a bad thing. Because if you have a lot of manuscripts and they don't match up, then you're kind of like, well, 
I don't know what to believe or what to expect, which one is true, which one is right. Conventional wisdom says the more we have, the more differences we might have between them. In a handwritten copy before the printing press, there was a few, let me just say, to say the least. For Caesar, there was 10 manuscripts, historically. For Plato, there were seven. For the New Testament, the New Testament alone, this is not the Old Testament, there were 24,000-plus manuscripts written. That is, a, I mean, that's applause-worthy. That's the Spirit at work. And that's obedience of the people. Christians revered the Scripture that God had spoken to them, and they wrote it down. Many accounts of who God was and what He did. The average classical writer has 20 copies. The average classical writer, there are 20 original manuscripts. This is before things were printed, which is about four foot tall. That's a portion of me. I'm not sure how much. The average height, the average height of all New Testament, just New Testament manuscripts, if you were to stack them on top of each other, is over a mile high. The second question then on that is, well, then how much do they match up? And there's atheists that will, will walk through the different manuscripts and find all the variants that they can, and they've, they've found that there are three to 4,000 variants among New Testament writings, New Testament manuscripts. And it's, it's a, it, it, that is a, a huge amount of variance. And to look at that, it might be discouraging. It might be something that kind of turns you off. It might be something where you think, I don't know if I can truly believe this. Let me just say this. 75 to 85% of the variants in the New Testament writings are spelling changes. Just a simple spelling error. And we know of our, uh, of our European neighbors that they put a U every once in a while in specific words. That's the type of differences we're talking about. No change to the definition, no change to the understanding. There are two specific instances in Scripture, in the Old Testament, where there's a, a recorded, in all Scriptures, there is a recorded note that says, this may not be in the original manuscript. In Mark chapter 16 and in John chapter 8. And in both of these, we're not hiding anything. It says, here's the text, this might not have been in the original. Take it for what it's worth. And the point is this, the second point, the short time gap between action and recording, along with the addition of overwhelming amount of consistent manuscripts, reveals that the present day Bible is accurate. Let me just say, there is a lot more to these conversations. There's a lot more to these tests, and I've got one more to go, and this last one will be more brief. There's a lot more to all of this, but let me just say, to start off with in the understanding, God has provided a way, a channel by which to bring forth the truth to us, and it is not tainted. The collaboration test is last. Do other historical materials confirm or deny the testimony provided by the documents itself? And once again, we're talking about the New Testament. So, writings outside of the book. To use an example, for instance, if you look at the Book of Mormon, there's little to no collaboration between history and what's written in there beyond what is copied from Scripture. Meaning there's, there's text in there from the Book of Mormon that is from uh, the, the Bible, the canonized Bible. The rest has almost no corroboration with any other historical book. The Bible continues to have historical documentation records proving its existence and authenticity pretty much every day. 
any kind of historian that's looking into anything. I'll just look at a few. In the town of Caesarea Maiatam, there's a, a archaeological evidence of this person named Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate, in and of himself, has no other recordings, no other manuscripts, no other recordings in history of his existence. The New Testament is the only place. Not three years ago, there was a, a monument found that literally has the years and dates of Pontius Pilate's service, the years and dates of Pontius Pilate's uh, life, him as an individual recorded in history for the first time outside of the New Testament, and it matches up entirely. Looking in at the, the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, verse 2, we see this pool where the angels come down and they would bless those that were laying around or the one that could get in first, and there was these colonnades inside or these porticos, Right? And there was these five porticos inside. They found this place. And as they attempted to dig, what they found, guess what? Guess what they found? They found five porticos buried beneath the surface. In the, in the context of looking through historical documents, they found the, the, the original architectural drawings of the temple, of the, of the uh, Philistine temple. And one thing that they found that was most notable was that there was uh, the support structure for this entire building. There was two specific columns that were about four to six feet apart from one another right in the middle. And for those of us who know, that's where Samson was placed, the strongest man that ever lived. And he then pushed down this, this entire building, this entire palace by pushing over these two columns that were four to six foot apart. Archaeological finds every single day point towards the corroboration of the New Testament. And I'll, and I'll move on. But the continuous archaeological discoveries overwhelmingly reveal a consistently accurate historical validation of Scripture. So why should we trust the New Testament? The New Testament authors cared enough to embarrass themselves and even die for the truth. There are more authentic and accurate manuscripts than any other else in history. And then finally, more archaeological finds are being made every day. These are just some small evidences, but it's certainly compelling to continue to research. Okay, that was the setup. Here's the sermon. I'm going to read from 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 10 through 17. It reads like this, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Inicum, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live godly, a godly life in, in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does Scripture have to do with me, have to do with you? 
Scripture is more than just a simple checklist or something that we add to our schedule. It's the embodiment of who we are. As a Christian, this is the embodiment. This book records the embodiment of how we are to live, how we are to be transformed. What are we, are to, what are we to do through conversion and beyond? God's word is inspired to be transformative. The power over it is without question the greatest ever. In verses 10 through 13, we see that this is a lifestyle. In fact, you can, we can look at this and talk about this idea of persecution. This is amazing to me. Uh, persecution doesn't always look like some kind of a, a militant push. In many cases, persecution even might come from the Spirit or might come from another person that we might consider judgmental or might be telling us what to do. But instead, the recognition there is, hey, look, there is a way that we live. And as a believer, we are changed. We live differently. The reality is, is everyone who wants to live like Jesus will be persecuted in some way, whether by the enemy, through the enemy, or as a result of someone attempting to push us towards Jesus. Satan will continue to nag you, continue to try to tear you down, especially as you allow this book to, to, to permeate within you. But there's good news. Verse 14 through 17, Paul's reliance on God's word points to the way of the unchained. Not living in chains anymore like those who suffer, like those who are not part of what God has planned for their lives. Timothy knew that he was on the right track because the people of his life had brought forth this foundation, the authority from Scripture. And the authority of Scripture needs to be emphasized. The foundation of the house by which we live in and the, and the view by which we have. Think about this. There are two worldviews. There's only two. We either believe that God created everything. God created man and woman. God created you and I. We either believe that and then through that we live as accordance to recognizing there is an ultimate God. There is a God that is above all else that created all. Or the other worldview is that man created God. And therefore he is a myth and doesn't exist. And so the, the foundation by which you stand, the authority by which you give scripture will dictate the worldview to which you subscribe. If you believe that God created man, then this scripture, this, this book is your guiding light. This is God-inspired, God-breathed word and it's true in your life. Five things I want to look at specifically right here. We're going to walk through them fairly quickly. The first one is this. Scripture, scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. This is that thing, that grace on top of grace, that provenient grace where the Holy Spirit brings forth an opportunity for us to be able to even hear the scripture first. The scripture is inspired by God and shows the way to God. It's a lamp unto my feet. Not long ago, I was outside after dark in the backyard with my son, and we were walking out to the woods. And as we were walking back from the woods, we had, we, he'd left something outside we were going to get it. As we were walking back from the woods, I was kind of using the flashlight to shine around to see if there was, you know, anything flying around. There was a, just kind of curious to see what wildlife was out there. Looking, uh, it was a, a big mag light, so I was looking down along the, the, the tree line. And eventually, my son says, Dad, can you shine that where we're walking? He wanted to see where he was walking. Let me tell you, if you want to see where you're walking in life, allow the word to eliminate the path before you. Don't get distracted by all the things going on everywhere else, but allow the word to be your guiding light. 
Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. The second thing is this. Scriptures offers, the Scripture offers salvation that is available through faith in Christ Jesus. It is not difficult. It's simple. I mean, it might be hard to do. It might be hard to make the change, but it, it is a simple message. God did not leave us, does not leave us, abandon us, leave us in chains, but he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a means for salvation because he loves you. He loves me. He loves all of us. And so we engage in our lives. Jesus died for your sins, period. Without him, none of this matters. The third one is all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed, which means the Holy Spirit granted the scripture. The Holy Spirit inspired the scripture to be written. It's the basics of, of Christian doctrine. It's the inspiration of God saying, okay, I am intersecting with this creation by giving forth this specific text so that they might be able to live differently and allow the Spirit to speak to them in a powerful and a real way. The fourth one is all Scripture is useful. I mean, this is right here in the text. All Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Teaching, an opportunity to learn and to grow. Rebuking, an opportunity to turn through conviction, possibly through reading the Word or through the Spirit speaking to us or maybe through another believer. They're not being judgmental. They want to see you grow in your faith and understand Him better. Correcting recognizing you're going in the wrong path. Here's where the light is shining. Walk in the light. And then finally training. After you give your heart to Jesus, it's not over. There's an opportunity for you to be able to grow and be part of what God's doing, his redemptive work. For Christians, both creed and conduct are rooted in Scripture, both what we believe and how we act. Scripture both directs our faith, our behaviors, our theology, and our ethics. If you're living unchanged after engaging with Scripture, maybe you should take another look. And then the fifth one is this. The end result of Scripture is that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right there in verse 17. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I mean, this is, this is clear. This is, this is a clear path. God is not going to leave you nor forsake you. Instead, he's given you this special gift and at the same time allowed the Spirit to live within you, as we talked about last week. He's intended for, for this to be personalized, for teaching for each believer, that he may contribute to the, that you may contribute to the eternal kingdom through his work, through his action. This book is full of power. This book is real. If you believe in the authenticity of this, of this holy scripture, and at the same time believe in the authenticity of our God, the question is, what are you going to do with it? What is the foundation by which your life is built? What will change in your heart when you open the scripture and allow it to, to and, and read it and allow it to permeate within you? You might be asking, why has nothing changed in my life? I've been reading every single day. I read the verse of the day. Somebody else has been sharing. You know, I listen to this and that. Maybe the, maybe the, the context there is you haven't allowed the scripture to permeate. You haven't allowed it to really deep, delve deep within you and allow your, your, your spirit to connect with the spirit. It's not just about reading the text. It's about allowing God to speak to you. Do you believe it's true? If you believe that God's word is true, what are you going to do with it. This morning I'm going to close in prayer, and as I do, I want to encourage each one of you. This isn't about 
adding something to your checklist where, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read every single day at this time, although that is a good thing. But it more, it, it's more balanced on the reality that how am I going to allow what I have read, what I do know, what I, what I continue to engage with to change who I am. No other book will change you. No other, no other novel out there, no other fiction or non-fiction book will change you the way that Scripture will because Scripture is inspired by our God. It's Him speaking to you. It's his, Him changing and transforming you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many gifts that you give us. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the, for the gifts that we have, the tangible things, for the relationships that we have. But ultimately, God, we thank you for the way that you are a present God. That you've sent your spirit, and at the same time, you have granted us the opportunity to be able to read and to know your word in a language that we can understand, in a way that we can comprehend. God, I pray that we would allow your word, not just to read it, God, and that we wouldn't just read it, but instead we'd allow your word to change us. We would allow your word to, to transform us. God, I pray, Father, without a shadow of a doubt, that each person here, each person that, that engages your word, wherever they might be, would be changed because of the presence of your Holy Spirit. May we go with an acknowledgement and understanding of how you have carefully kept your word pure and authentic for us even here today and how we can continue to engage in it. We love you, Father. We thank you for all you've done. We thank you for the way you continue to move. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Let me close. Actually, I want to I share one more thing. I once told a, heard a story, uh, actually I think it was from another pastor, about a man that uh, he was witnessing to, a man in prison. He gave him the Bible. He gave him the Holy Word. And he said, hey, why don't you start in Matthew? Why don't you read through and see what God does through Matthew? And after a couple visits with the man, he recognized that the Bible was looking a little bit thinner. And he asked him, you know, what's taking place here? What's going on? He said, well, what, what's happened is, and I might be getting the, the, the details a little bit off. What's happened is I, I read a page and then I tear out that page and I use it to roll my cigarettes. And the preacher looked kind of puzzled. He was kind of discouraged. But after, uh, you know, just kind of walking through it, he recognized, okay, at least he's reading it. At least he's getting it. And finally, he came back and he noticed the man was changed. And he noticed at the same time that the Bible had not shrunken anymore. And he said, what's the difference? What's happened in your life? And he said, well, I smoked Matthew. And I smoked Mark. And I smoked Luke. But when I got to John, John smoked me. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working through the Word. John 1, 1 reads like this, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Go with Him. He'll go with you. You're loved. Read your Word. Get in your Word and let the Spirit permeate within you. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office, check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. 
If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless. God bless.